Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Dr. Elizabeth Hall, a.k.a. Liz, as I will refer to you as you go by. Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. It's good to be here. So when and why did you start thinking about the role of doubt in Christian faith? I'm not sure that I can define kind of a moment. Uh, I've been teaching in Christian higher education for almost 25 years. So I work with students at a stage of their life where they're often trying to figure out their faith, personalize their faith. And so the issue of doubt has kind of been there a little bit in the background, perhaps even increasing a bit over time in terms of um, my students' experience. So probably four years ago, uh, there was a call for grant proposals that uh, had to do with the intersection of science and religion. And I thought, oh, maybe this will be an opportunity to dedicate some time to this topic that has just been kind of ruminating in the back of my mind for a while. And so that was, you know, for us academics, being able to carve out a little bit of space uh, often means that something gets, gets done. And so that was kind of the impetus for the present work. I mean, if you think about it, my job as a professor and Christian higher education is really to help people to doubt in the sense of the word that I want them to 
kind of question what they've maybe unthinkingly received and adopted as they were growing up, because I want them to move into a, a more robust version of their faith that's going to help them to survive in the world that we live in, right? And so often that involves kind of shaking up some of the givens in order to help them to, you know, put the pieces back together in, in a more helpful way. So you're at Biola, which is a, a Christian university in Southern California. Actually, my wife went there and graduated there. And I've talked to a lot of professors at Christian colleges because these are the types of academics who often study the questions that I'm interested in. For instance, your colleague, Pete Hill, interviewed him on this podcast around the psychology of religious fundamentalism and Pam King, your colleague, just more recently. But then, of course, Seattle Pacific and, you know, any name them all, just like so many Christian college professors have been on this show and others like it. And it strikes me that the church, like the, the segment of the church, let's call it like more the Christianity Today Gospel Coalition segment of the church, which has only a partial overlap with my audience, they would be wise to utilize you guys, professors at Christian universities, for this moment where the word deconstruction has sort of gone mainstream and a lot of uh, Christians are understandably anxious about that. They're anxious about what's going on with their children. You know, there's all kinds of things we could say about the causes and roots of all that. But just in terms of like, who do they turn to to understand what's going on? Somebody should get something going of like a informal consultation network or, you know, some consultant network or whatever. Right. Isn't there something there? Uh, I think that that's a great idea. I was uh, actually thinking I have uh, a colleague and friend, uh, John Marriott, who does research on deconversion. So that's his area. And I don't think that he's thought about this idea of a consultation group, but, um, you know, he's been writing some books about kind of preparing young people in the church, you know, how to create a kind of church experience that will help people to navigate, you know, some of the pressures that that they feel that we might call uh, doubt. And so uh, I think that's a fantastic idea. But actually, I wanted to say, um, I love that you brought up that term deconstructing or that phrase deconstructing the faith, which has really just only kind of surfaced culturally in the last few years to and attached itself to that experience of doubt. And I find it a, a problematic phrase, frankly. Um, you yeah, know, why? we, well, I mean, we're, as human beings, we, we, we are really guided by the metaphors that we adopt. They shape our way of thinking, their way of, our way of imagining possibilities, outcomes, that kind of a thing. And I don't know that a metaphor that is about taking something down to zero, right? I mean, deconstructing means that once you take it apart, there's nothing there, right? I'm not sure that that kind of metaphor is the best metaphor for doing the kind of intellectual work that I hope every Christian would do as they're moving into adulthood, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I know that it comes from Derrida and that I, my understanding is that that term first became a part of the sort of Christianity lexicon with maybe earlier postmodern thought, the emergent church movement, you know, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and now it's reached critical mass. And so some people don't like it because the original meaning that they, you know, they actually read Derrida and now all these people, you know, so there's that thing, which I'm like a, a little bit eye-rolly about that. But maybe like another angle is just 
deconstructing to you to to take that metaphor very seriously, it actually assumes maybe a kind of enlightenment view of the world where reason is king and where we have these sort of like individual atomized intellectual ascent items, these doctrinal items that build a structure and we can sort of take them out one by one. I mean, I think to some degree you can do that. Like you could, for instance, make a list of all the doctrines you were raised with and you could sort of check them off as you read up about them. But in reality, that's not how human brains work, as you well know. And it's all a web. It's all interconnected. People are involved in this. Communities like our, our people our friends, our family, our church communities are involved in this. They are affecting at every moment the plausibility of various items on that list of doctrines, right? Right For reasons completely unrelated to the evidence of them. And so in that sense, it's kind of an impoverished metaphor for really something that, that happens much more like, I don't know, the nodes of a network or the internet or something like that, or a yeah. giant spider web or something. That's right. That's right. You're right. It it, it is uh, unhelpful in that particular regard too, and then even in just in in terms of you know I'm hoping we'll be able to talk a bit more about what we mean by doubt. But I think it taps into kind of the worst conceptualizations of doubt, which means I'm on the edge of a cliff, and once I step off of that cliff, there's nothing there. Right? I'm just I'm just going to crash at the bottom. Right? So once you step into that metaphor of deconstructing the faith, all of a sudden. The, the outcome that I'm aiming toward is going to be, you know, something where there's nothing there, right? Right, which is, that's interesting because my own experience, which I've talked about plenty uh, on this show, is I, I had a, I've had a very, basically a lifelong D and reconstruction, you know, one thing at a time or a few things at a time as, as I've come up against experiences or books or, you know, ideas, right? And I've basically never really not considered myself a Christian. Although I recognize that for people who are more systematic thinkers, maybe, and I'm, I'm, but I'm pretty systematic, but for, for many people, that might be the way that they need to do it. You know, it's just, it's just that, yeah, when, when a metaphor goes mainstream, people might attach meanings to it sort of naively that won't end up applying to their experience. I know you don't mean to devalue the folks who do have to get there, there, there are Christians who had to deconvert. Right. Depending on where you are raised and, you know, how toxic of an environment, sometimes you got to go all the way to the studs or the Absolutely. foundation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the concern is, is again, how the metaphors shape the experience, right? right. So I'm all for people having their own journeys and that kind of thing, but I want their, I don't want their imagination to be constrained, their path to be defined by the boundaries of a particular metaphor that their culture has given them as the way that they're supposed to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's super interesting. Well, that could be its own episode, but we have some very interesting stuff to talk about today around doubt, lament, spiritual struggle. And then I'm really excited to get to intellectual humility and uncertainty tolerance, uh, Mm -hmm. because those are already coming into my work with clients and feel just really alive in terms of what I'm learning uh, in my own training to become a psychologist. But I want to sort of start off with, there's a one particular passage of the Bible that is a real thorn in the side of any Christian who wants to sort of elevate the role of doubt. And it's always been in kind of the back of my mind for really 20 years now, as I have doubted. I mean, I was a philosophy undergrad at Cal Poly Secular School 
And there was just no way around doubt. I mean, I, I was never going to not doubt. I was already doubting before I started that program. And I doubt literally every day. And I am now comfortable with it. But this is the verse. It's in James 1. And I just want to sort of lay it out there. I think we can come back to it. Here, I'm going to quote the, I think this is the ESV, which seems appropriate to quote the ESV to uh, when, when uh, <laughs> I have a little bit of an anti, I don't know, anti-reformed bent to me. So I'm going to quote the ESV to like use its poison against it. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways, end quote. Any thought, like, you don't you don't have to give away the farm here at the beginning, but just do students ever sort of quote that in class or to you? And like, do you have sort of an initial response that maybe we'll unpack more as we go? Yeah, well, I mean, of course, it comes up in the context of any discussion uh, on doubt by people who are concerned about their, their experiences. I mean, I think this verse illustrates uh, perfectly, uh, you know, a point that I'm sure comes up again and again and again in uh, episodes of your podcast, that it's very problematic to grab one verse, a couple verses uh, out of the Bible, lift them out of context, and then assume that you know what every single word in that passage means. Uh, and this is a, a prime example of that. Because it turns out that when you look at it in context and when you try to understand a bit more some of the crucial terms in that passage, uh, all of a sudden it's not really talking about the kind of thing that I hope you and I will be talking about on this uh, episode, right? You know, what does that word doubt mean in that context and what does it mean to pray with faith, right? Uh, asking in faith in that context. And so, again, I'm hoping we'll talk a little bit more about the faith part of it, maybe. But in terms of doubt, I mean, James gives us a little bit of a hint of what he means by that, even in that passage. It says that person uh, is a double-minded person, right? So there's something about double-mindedness that is uh, what he is meaning by doubt. And then later on in James 4, he comes back around and uses that word double-minded again. And in that context, he's talking about people that have a friendship with the world, and they also want to have a friendship with God. And so he says, you are double-minded, right? So again, if we think about double-minded and what it means in those contexts, it's kind of, it's more of an allegiance type thing, right? He seems to be talking more about hypocrisy. People want to be in the world and they want to be friends of God. And there's kind of a, a sense of, you have to kind of uh, have this, uh, commitment, right? This gut level allegiance or trust or, uh, you know, however you want to put that kind of volitional component there. So I am really not convinced that he's talking at all about the type of doubt that we are talking about. In fact, it would be very ironic if he did, because if we knew everything about God and how he was going to answer our prayers, wouldn't that make faith completely unnecessary? And so it's just kind of packed into, I think, being human to have a little bit of kind of uncertainty or, you know, wondering or yeah, however we might want to put it. Yeah. Well, I do. I want to come back to that at the end. I've got, I wrote a couple things down that I think will become, we'll get some more meat from the rest of this discussion. But first, before we get into defining some terms, I wanted to ask you, what is the difference between engaging topics in the abstract, what we might call 
the content of something that we are doubting, you know, the particular doctrines or particular arguments. What's the difference between that, like in a classroom or chatting on a podcast? Like, you know, I had Kyle Roberts on recently and we talked about the virgin birth and we went through, you know, different readings and when did the church do this? And, you know, so that's, we are engaging in a question where we're kind of doubting a doctrine and we're doing it abstractly. What's the difference between that and the experience of doubting, the lived phenomenological, you know, emotional embodied experience of doubting one's faith? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think that maybe the difference between them is clear. I guess what the point that I want to make is that usually when we talk about doubt, we just default to talking about the content of whatever issue it is that we are doubting, right? And that means that all kinds of people address that, people talk about it, people have written books and articles trying to address different content areas of doubt, right? But in my opinion, the the actual experience of doubt, like what's going on inside of the person who is doing the doubting has really been neglected. There just have not been very many people uh, talking about that experience of it. And again, I'm a psychologist. That is the part that's going to be very interesting to me, especially because I feel like we use that word doubt to cover like an incredible array of experiences. I mean, things ranging from maybe the kind of doubt you were talking about, the just kind of a question that comes up. We read something, we're like, huh, I wonder how that fits with this, right? All the way to somebody saying, I'm doubting, meaning that they're having this really existential crisis, or they think that the very foundations of their world are going to, you know, be disappearing. And so we need to pay more attention to what, what's going on inside the person when they're talking about doubting. Yeah. And this is, as listeners know, this is relates very directly to my own burgeoning research on spiritual harm and abuse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in certain sort of doctrinal contexts and or certain personality types or wirings of whatever sort, doubting an abstract thing at the very beginning when you're still, when all your plausibility structures are still attuned to your original, maybe fundamentalist type community, where all that still seems to be true to you and you're only just starting to wonder if it's not true, then included in the very fact that you're doubting is the notion that you might be sending yourself to hell or you might be taking yourself out of God's favor. And in that moment, in that first moment of early deconstruction, if we want to call it that or, you know, whatever, early doubt, the, <laughs> you, you could say the abstract part of, oh, I wonder like, oh, I wonder if the Bible might not be inerrant in science and history and whatever, like that little bit, which a few years from now, you're going to maybe chuckle at is nothing compared to the thought of, but if I assent to that Am I going to hell? Am I one of the bad guys? You know, and and like that visceral existential thing is way more interesting and way more powerful. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I'm hoping that that's what we can do today is kind of lift the hood a little bit on people's experiences and try to understand a bit more why it is that people have such diverse experiences of, you know, having questions about their faith. Right. I, that sounds perfect, Liz. Uh, In fact, I mean, let me push that even more. I, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's kind of a neutral experience, right? It doesn't really bother them one way or another, but I think that there's a long tradition, a long, uh, you know, 
tradition within Christianity of thinking about doubt as not just not problematic, but actually as an opportunity for growth and development and greater intimacy with God. And so um, it's it goes from being something neutral to something that can be wildly disruptive or wildly helpful in people's Christian lives. 100%. So let's, let's define some terms, which is not going to be as boring as it sounds, because we're going to, I'm sure it'll be interesting to figure these out. So I've got five terms and one uh, psychological concept here, and we're just going to go through and you tell us what you mean by these terms. So what do you mean by the term doubt? So this might seem like something uh, easy to define. I'm actually a little reluctant to, to offer a definition of this. I'm more interested in what people mean when they say that there's doubt, right? Uh, I think generally people are talking about maybe a couple of different kinds of experiences. One that has to do with kind of an intellectual tension between something in the faith and something that they're learning from somewhere else. But I think that people also use the term doubt to talk about a doubting of God's character, right? A, a wondering if God's going to come through or, or something like that. So I think generally people use doubt to refer to those two kind of buckets of experiences. Yeah. In some sense, it's, it's an uncertainty. It just is like, what's the uncertainty about? Could be a couple different things, That's but right. it's faith related uncertainty or, or something like that. That's right. That's right. Okay. The next one is lament and, you know, lament could be its own episode, of course, uh, diving into the way that lament was used by the Israelites, for instance, and then the way Jesus picks that up and how it's been used by the church at various times and why it is virtually absent in modern, in a lot of modern church spaces. But it's going to intersect with this conversation because lament is, it's almost like lament is past doubt, right? It's like for the moment, like you failed me, God. I mean, there are instances of that in the text, not a ton of them. You can always come back from that, right? You mm -hmm. might feel mm -hmm. for the moment like, oh, this actually just didn't work out. Not like I wonder if this will work out, right? In that sense, that's mm -hmm. one way of thinking about doubt and lament. But what do you mean when you use the term lament? I'm talking about a particular pattern of engagement with God that we see throughout the Bible. I mean, kind of the paradigm of it are the Psalms of lament. Uh, but certainly it occurs in other in other parts uh, of the Old Testament and then is picked up by Jesus in, in the New Testament. And it's a pattern that, from a psychological perspective, is very interesting because it's a meaning-making pattern. So it's a pattern that starts with people in the midst of their despair. And what's crucial about it is it's addressing God, taking that problems, the anger, whatever is going on, and bringing it to God. And then typically the pattern of lament leads into a petition, what the person wants God to do about it. And then the most interesting part of the arc of lament is that it usually ends in praise or an expression of trust in God. And so in that way, it kind of takes people full circle. You know, we talked earlier about the power of metaphors in shaping our experience. I think that this is uh, the power of kind of a structure of changing our experience that I really do think that the repeated engagement in that arc and that movement, right, uh, actually helps to form and shape what we do with our troubling experiences, whether it be doubt or any other kind of experience that we have. Yeah, lament is so interesting. And this is hopefully going to be an episode in the future. But I, I want to do an episode on this idea of spiritual bypassing, which is a term that comes up through, you know, Christian psychologists, the idea being 
that it's when we sort of give a truism about God or suffering or another angel in heaven or, you know, well, but God, but God always knows what's best or, you know, where we sort of jump to some sort of surfacey kind of band-aid solution. And we might even take the words from that from the very end of a lament psalm, but we'll skip the lament part. And I, I wrote a paper recently arguing that basically like spiritual bypassing is just skipping the sad part of the lament cycle. And that psychologically that's really problematic because for instance, when we are working with traumatized clients, the whole point, at least the model that I am being trained in, uh, the idea with, with PTSD, for instance, is that by avoiding the experience, you know, you avoided it in the moment, you couldn't process it, and then you continue to avoid it. And that is how you maintain PTSD symptoms. And you have to sit with it and face it, and you have to name it, and it's very painful, and it, it gets much worse before it gets better. And the lament cycle that you're describing, you know, it's a poor man's psychology. It, it's, it's basically getting done what, uh, you know, exposure therapy gets done or what cognitive processing treatment gets done for trauma where it's like you actually are sitting with it. And then, yeah, there is a meaning making part where you go, ah, I've come some way. Thank you, God, you know, or, or whatever. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I appreciate the way that you're pulling spiritual bypass into this. As kind of a side note, I really think that the spiritual bypass idea captures something really important. I will say that the research literature on spiritual bypass is deeply flawed. And so um, it's there's a I have some caveats with respect to what the field of counseling psychology has done with it. But, you know, returning to the idea itself, I think that that's exactly right, that there's something about just skipping over or trying to skip over the hard parts that is so detrimental. It keeps us at a very shallow place with God. It, it's almost like in a marriage relationship. If you never told your spouse what was going on in your heart, it's going to be a very superficial relationship, right? And God already knows what's in our hearts. So why not engage with it with God, right? So the next term is spiritual struggle. And I'll just let you know, so you don't have to go over it too much. I am having Julie Xline and Kenneth Pargament on uh, in the coming months to talk about spiritual struggle in its own episode, but just briefly sort of define it and put it in conversation with what we've been chatting about. Yeah. Uh, so Julie especially has started this really interesting research trajectory in the field of psychology around what she calls spiritual struggles. And again, it's kind of a, a big bucket uh, type idea where basically anything kind of related to faith might be something that you have trouble with, Right. Uh, whether it's something directly with uh, with God or anger at God, whether it's questioning your religious beliefs, feeling disillusioned with your Christian upbringing. I mean, there's various kind of ideas that are packed into there, but that might result in a kind of emotional distress related to aspects of your of your faith. Is this one of those metaphors you like better than deconstruction because it it sort of implies less? It it's, doesn't imply an end point. Yeah, it's That's more right. neutral. It's more neutral. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think spiritual struggle is better. I even like things like internalization of faith, right? Which is going to involve some struggle or deepening of faith. I mean, those are ones that lead to much more optimistic, mm -hmm. you know, kind of endpoint in uh, kind of our imaginary space than deconstruction. 
Well, and not, you know, not to get bogged down here, but of course, like, that's not enough for some people from where they come from, right? So if you're, if you are a black Christian who has been seriously wounded in white religious spaces your whole life, you know, it's not enough to just say, I think I need a deepening of faith. Like, like something has to be deconstructed with namely the sort of normativity of male white evangelical, male white Christianity boxed up and presented as Christianity yes. to you and your fellow believers of color. And I, and that's another future episode. I'm excited to talk with Tyler Burns from the past the mic podcast about how deconstruction looks coming from the black church. Uh, and I think there's, some overlap and quite a bit of difference, but you know, that, or as we've been talking about a super fundamentalist type upbringing where a lot of things do have to be sort of deconstructed, but it's that it's getting out to where, well, you know, I was raised United Methodist and, uh, I'm a woman. No one ever told me I couldn't preach. No one ever, you know, it's like, I just have some questions and I, and I've, I've realized that I I actually am probably going to end up a Quaker, you know, or whatever. Like, is that deconstruction or is that spiritual struggle? Like, you know, spiritual struggle is is nicer. It's a bigger term. It in, it can encompass yeah. more. It's very descriptive. Yeah, I, I yeah. think there's there's a part of me that still wants to hang on to metaphors like deepening or that kind of thing because every one of those scenarios that you've talked about, I can see somebody kind of hanging on to God. And then wrestling with those things, right? Mm. And I actually think that that's a much better position with which to do that, right? Hanging on to God and then wrestling with fundamentalism. Hanging on to God, wrestling with kind of racist uh, institutional structures that we've set up, right. you know, that kind of thing. Oh, I can't resist going a couple of minutes with you on this. My personal experience, as I've talked about and listeners are probably bored with, is that I started having sort of quite visceral, quite phenomenological direct experience of God through contemplative practice before the last eight or so years of my own deconstruction continued. And as I have become sort of maximally doubting around issues of pluralism, you know, the fact that there are so many options, like the fact of my the own particular context I happen to have been born into, that stuff goes really deep for me. And I have been able to, most of the time, recall these experiences. And in fact, I've had many experiences where I am like driving, I'm in a particularly kind of dark spot in terms of all of, all of that. And I sort of like turn my consciousness towards God and I feel God sort of like, I feel joy. Mm -hmm. I feel God saying like, bro, I'm still here. Mm -hmm. But I think for people who have a less, a less experiential faith, mm -hmm. uh, a faith that is more constructed out of their community and the fact that people around them believe that they are also a part of the team and, you know, don't have that direct experience. How do people hang on to God while they're doubting the specific tenets that make them a part of the group that tells them they're a Christian? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Um, so, uh, you know, I guess that would still continue to be my recommendation. I think it's fantastic that you have actual experiences you can draw on in I going feel through those fortunate. times. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that what we want to encourage people to do is in the absence, maybe of some of those experiences to uh, still be open to the possibility that those can happen even as they're struggling and maybe even particularly because they're struggling. So if, if we had to kind of boil it down to nut, you know, to, to like, you know, just one little recommendation here, I would say whenever possible and in the spirit of lament, right. 
take whatever you're doubting with and just ask God directly about it, right? Struggle in God's presence, just doubt in God's presence. Hmm. I think that's a, that's again, going back to the phenomenology of it, that's very different than sitting in your dark corner and wondering about things and kind of isolation, right? But right. to practice yeah. doing that by saying, God, what is going on here? You know, uh, I think that that can be very helpful in helping people to navigate some of those tough times of doubt. It can be scary, right? It can oh, be yeah. scary to sort of directly turn to God, especially if that hasn't been your primary mode of faith. But let's let's keep going. So the next term here, and all my all my lights are flashing. I'm getting excited. I'm getting a little boost of adrenaline and dopamine. Intellectual humility. Liz, this is one of the one of my favorite terms of my adult life, <laughs> as I have thought. As I I have had people tell me that know me well or know the work well, like, Dan, what you're what you're usually arguing for at bottom is intellectual humility or intellectual slash theological humility. And so I'm so excited to hear you define this term. Well, you know, it's uh, I, I really like the term, too. Um, and I like the fact that there's been renewed uh, just academic interest in it in recent years. And so I think that intellectual humility, especially as an academic, right, someone who does that kind of for a living is so necessary as part of what are called the intellectual virtues, right? What is a virtuous way of seeking truth? And so it's, it's a little bit of, uh, again, it's a complex construct. And so uh, various scholars have pointed to different aspects of it, right? So one is just the willingness to admit that your own belief about something might be fallible, right? You might be wrong. Part of it is knowing how much confidence you should have in a particular belief because of the evidence that is available to support that belief. And then yet a third part of it is being aware of your own limitations, Right. Being aware of your limitations in terms of accessing relevant information and even evaluating and understanding the information that's available there. And so it's a little bit of a package deal. Right. A colleague uh, here at Biola, Kent Dunnington, has done some work in this area. He's a philosopher. And uh, along with Pete Hill, actually, uh, the three of us worked on a project a couple of years ago where we were thinking about what we call theistic intellectual humility. Because uh, normal kinds of intellectual humility, as they're discussed in the academy, have a limitation. And, you know, you brought up uh, the Enlightenment uh, a few minutes ago. And I think it's something that stems from kind of that Enlightenment basis where there is a bit of a sense that reason is supposed to rule the day, even with respect to intellectual humility. Right. And that you should be kind of uh, empowered as an individual to uh, kind of call the shots and exercise your reason and lead it in kind of this as this pure basis for, you know, uh, arriving at truth uh, all by yourself. Right. And that's kind of problematic when you think about it from, you know, a historic Christian perspective. And so uh, Kent did some really interesting work looking at how uh, Augustine expressed ideas related to intellectual humility. So Augustine wasn't talking about, or he wasn't writing about something called intellectual humility, but what he evidenced in the ways that he approached, uh, you know, debates and, and uh, the intellectual world was what Kent calls a glad intellectual dependence on God. Hmm. 
And so underlying all of his kind of seeking and, you know, trying to understand and that kind of thing was a deep awareness of uh, his finitude and of God's omniscience. And so that's kind of the background of, you know, this whole idea of intellectual humility that really is kind of arresting in God and acknowledging, again, limitations, but also acknowledging God as the source of all truth. I have so many ways I'd like to go with that. I will try and limit it to two. The first is that how I have like rededicated my life to intellectual humility is through is through the shift from theology primarily to psychology primarily. And when I read Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind around the time of the 2016 election, it just really kind of gave me language for something that, of course, I had perceived to some degree, which is that people just don't know the reasons that they do things. And when you ask them why they do things, they don't give you the real answers, not because they are lying to you, but because they're lying to themselves or they're just unaware. And that, you know, that brought me all the way back to 17-year-old college freshman reading Plato. Like, it's not, you know, that's not some sort of stunning revelation, but it gave me new language and it sort of re, you know, it put that in the context of politics and morality, for instance. And so that is where I have uh, renewed my interest in intellectual humility is is also like, it, it. so when you said the Enlightenment, it's like, yeah, that's not actually a reason thing. That is an affect thing. That's an emotional thing. It's about who I look up to. It's about who I identify with. And this is why on this show, I'm always talking about plausibility structures because those structures, what I find plausible are determined by things that I have not thought through and chosen that I have been given. And then maybe through life, I start to choose the kind of people that I think might be right. And then that might sort of underground affect the plausibility structures in a, in a way where I have a bit more agency, but I don't start with really any agency around plausibility structures. It has to be built over time. So that's the first thing. Do you, anything to respond to there? And then I'm going to talk about pragmatism. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Sure. Okay. And then the second response is that I have recognized in myself getting more and more into a kind of Christian pragmatism as these intellectual, like as if I do it purely intellectually, I come up against these completely unsolvable walls. Like I ask myself something like if I had been born in Iran and I had the same mind and sort of whatever, like I would be doing a podcast about different interpretations of the Quran, probably. And I would be really interested in whether or not these aspects of Sharia made sense in the modern world. And I would have gone to university, but I would have, you know, and I just can't, I can't be born into another way of seeing the world. I can't be born into like a Buddhist and Confucian inflected China and imagine I just can't do it. I don't have any access to that. So That leads me away from sort of exclusivist intellectual claims about Christianity, sort of, you know, that it obviously gets things right. And these other religions obviously get it wrong because I just don't I don't feel like I have any leg to stand on. So then I go, okay, but people are still religious and no one has those legs to stand on. And yet religion works. It just does. It has all these effects for people. Of course, it can go terribly wrong. And, and that's what the spiritual abuse research is, you know, highlighting and detailing in, in gory detail. 
but I, I find myself more and more thinking in, in terms of a, basically a pragmatism of like, to the extent that it works, it is in some sense true. And when you said the part about sort of resting in God, you know, the way that Augustine talked about it of like, well, God's omniscient. And by the way, I, I think I'm more of like a process theologian. So I don't, I mean, omniscient has a different name for me, but God knows everything that can be known, put it that way. And I don't, right. Then, so someone can interpret what you said intellectually, right. As like a, well, I'll just subsume my own intellect and trust that God knows. But the way that I want to take it is a pragmatist direction of like, you know, this is working for some reason and I'm going to die not knowing the reason, but it has worked for billions of people and it is working. It has worked literally for me and it works for my family. Right. And so like that is another way of doing that. That's not so enlightenment choked maybe. All right. That was a lot, Liz. So I'm open to anything you have to say about that. Well, I mean, it seems to me that the directions that people go once they recognize finitude and God's omniscience, however you want to define that, can go different ways, I think, depending on people's bent, right? Uh, Certainly what you're describing sounds like a a way that, again, being pragmatic, a way that works, right? Other people might want to land in a slightly different place, you know, maybe saying, well, you know, my understanding of the Bible does seem to have some kind of exclusivism around that. And I don't know how that works with people being born in different places and coming from different subjectivities. And so guess what? Maybe I don't have to decide what that means, right? And maybe I can leave that for one of the things that maybe God will allow me to understand more fully when I'm in heaven, although I'll still be finite in heaven, but maybe a little more direct access to to some things about that. Yeah. So yeah, I think I, I, I think the key thing is the the uh, embracing of the finitude and the acknowledging the omniscience, right? And I think that's where we get it wrong so many times, because we think that we should understand. And maybe for some of us, there's even a little bit of a tinge of we deserve to understand, right? Okay, and this leads perfectly into our next term, which is uncertainty tolerance. Right. Right. So some of us have very low uncertainty tolerance. And I think that that drives, for instance, the sort of mega business of Christian apologetics, some of which I think is a lot more legitimate than others. Mm-hmm. But certainly the sort of Lee Strobel's of the world are are basically and, you know, he I don't know what he thinks. He probably believes it, too. Uh, but this kind of like what I would consider to be a, a massive overselling of how certain a Christian can be about the truth of Christianity or theism or whatever. This relates directly to this experiential issue of uncertainty tolerance. How comfortable, you define it. I'm not going to define it. So how are you defining uncertainty tolerance? So uncertainty tolerance and a a really related uh, phrase called tolerance of ambiguity are both ones that have been studied in the field of psychology for some time. And so we might think of uncertainty tolerance as all of the, psychological responses that we have when we become aware that we're ignorant about something, right? And so these kinds of responses that we have might be negative, they might be positive, but they're they're cognitive, they're emotional, they're behavioral, right? And it's uncertainty tolerance is uh, something that kind of gets invoked all the time because we live in a world in which sometimes information is ambiguous or because things are really complex, difficult to kind of grasp. 
or because, you know, things in the future, we, we, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. They're, they're indeterminate. We, we don't have control over that. And so we're surrounded by circumstances in which there is uncertainty. And so what do we do with that psychologically, right? Are we hardy? Are we able to just kind of say, oh, that's uncomfortable, but hey, I'm just going to go on with my life. Or does it become something that is so kind of maddening, so unbearable that we have to kind of do something about it, right? Uh, I mean, this might be getting ahead of the game, but like in doubt, if we have low uncertainty tolerance, we might shut down cognitively. We might do radical things behaviorally, right? You know, we lose our faith or we retreat into fundamentalism or we drop out of school because we can't handle the tensions that are coming up. So that's in a nutshell what, what uncertainty tolerance is all about. Whew. You just you just tapped directly into my largest veins. So good. If you'd like to support this show financially, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Koch. Patrons get access to the Facebook group, which is patron only, as well as at least two exclusive episodes per month. Right now, we are in the middle of a couple kind of ongoing series, gospel episodes with uh, Ariel from Trans Regrets Snoopy Presents the Bible, former guest on this show. She and I are going through one gospel at a time, and we just put out our episode uh, a little over a week ago about the gospel of Mark, and we had Ash Nerve, co-host of the Boys Bible Study podcast, and also Ariel's editor, join us for the book of Mark, and we still have uh, Luke and John to come, and also Tony Jones and I have been doing these Generation Gap Culture Hour kind of variety episodes responding to more current events and current topics. Those have been really fun to make. So if you want to hear any of those, including any past episode from the Patreon feed, which includes all of our response episodes to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, you can become a patron and listen to any of those. Uh, Patreon.com slash Dan Coke, five bucks a month. Back to my conversation with Liz. There's one more sort of term or concept to define that that for you is helpful to kind of weave in and out of the rest of this, and that is implicit versus explicit knowledge. So what's that distinction about? Most of the time when we think about knowing, we're thinking about, you know, what earlier in this podcast we talked about is kind of the cognitive content of something, right? A series of statements or beliefs or what we might call facts or whatever it is that comprises what we quote unquote know, right? But if we stop and think about it, there's actually a whole different way in which we know. We know our friends, we know our spouses, we know how to ride a bicycle, we know, I mean, there's a whole kind of layer of knowing that is not kind of the intellectual uh, kind of belief-based knowing. And what psychology tells us is that that implicit knowing is actually a lot more uh, pervasive in the way that our lives function than we might think, right? Uh, so that there's a kind of whole set of information that we are getting about the world through our bodies, through that then this channel to the brain and that kind of thing that is processed and that we just know, 
about the world, about relationships. Uh, but we don't often take that knowing and put it into words. It doesn't become conscious, in other words. It does influence our behavior, but often that's kind of outside of our awareness. Well, to connect this back to to Jonathan Haidt and The Righteous Mind, you know, his language for this is the rider and the elephant, and the explicit knowing is the rider in this sense, and the implicit knowing is the elephant. And he says, look, the elephant is more, like more determinative, more causal of where we go. And the rider sometimes determine, you know, it can change the elephant over time. Like I mentioned, for instance, I could make a new set of friends on purpose, I could say, you know, I want to be hanging out with this group of people more often. And I set myself reminders and I ask them more often when they can hang out. And over time, their elephants will influence my elephant by my interaction with them. But barring something like that, I just am born with an elephant surrounded by other elephants already. And the writer, if I have an unexamined life, the writer just becomes my inner lawyer. It just sort of tells me that it's okay that I did things. And it comes up with reasons why I did what I did that are not necessarily the real reasons. And so this implicit knowing then, yes, that it is is arguably more powerful than our explicit knowing. And maybe this is one way of saying it. Tell me if you think this is right. Sometimes what we think we know explicitly, like through thinking about stuff or, or we, we tell ourselves, well, I've really researched this or whatever. Okay. For instance, an anti-vaxxer who says, well, I've done my research. You know, I've read a bunch of Facebook articles. Well, they might think that they know that explicitly, but what they don't realize, and I'm, I'm just coming up with a fictional version of this person. This is not true of everybody, but this person I'm imagining, what they don't realize is that implicitly they have grown to distrust medical communities, universities, intellectualism, liberal elites, and they found a bunch of people who speak their language who are anti-vax. And so then they go, oh, this person must be right. They don't realize it's their elephant. It is the implicit thing that they, well, what I know implicitly is that I don't like those people and I do like these people. And now those arguments become persuasive to them. So we might even think we know something implicitly that we don't. It's just, it's our implicit stuff. And calling that knowledge, right, that becomes problematic because you don't know a thing that's false, but what you're saying makes sense, right? It's the... What do we think is true implicitly? What do we think is true explicitly? Yeah, yeah. So just a couple of comments. Again, knowledge. Let's not get hung up. I know philosophers uh, use right. that word in a very different way. So I'm, I'm going to use it in the psychological way, right? So we can kind of lay aside that the yeah. truth element of that. There, there's been some really fascinating research on the ways that our implicit and explicit knowledge uh, interact with each other. And much in line with what Haidt says about kind of our moral reasoning, you know, research shows that Things like our commitments, the commitments of our tribe, uh, influence even how we reason. So, for example, the standards that we set to accept some piece of information from the outside environment as being convincing, right? Uh, I think one person put it as, if it's consistent with what we want to believe, it's can I believe this? If it's not consistent, it's must I believe this, yep. right? And so that's a very different kind of standards for what we accept as as true. And that seems to be pushed by 
the the implicit uh, type stuff, not by our capacity for reason. Yeah. Uh, one time I sent, I tried to convince a conservative friend of mine to read David French because I think that David French is like a fair dealing conservative, but who is not falling into the sort of trap of Trumpism. And the person responded to me, the guys I like don't like David French. And so he didn't read it. And, you know, I get it. Like, I've certainly like the guys I like don't like Thomas Sowell, the conservative economist. And so I haven't read Thomas Sowell. And I know that I have friends who like him. I know he's a black conservative economist. But like Jamar Tisby doesn't appear to like him. And I really like Jamar Tisby. And he is, you know, a black historian. So it's like. We all do that. I'm I'm guilty of it as well. So it's not a matter of, oh, only those ignoramuses do it. No, we all of us, our implicit sense of what is true is massively even people like, you know, I'm literally learning to become a psychologist and run a podcast about discussing ideas. And I'm aware that I'm doing this, too. Right. So we're, it's not like no one is uh, immune from this kind of a thing. That's exactly right. I, I mean, I think that the best we can do is then to, uh, as much as is possible, raise our own awareness of kind of these implicit type areas, because I think from a spiritual formation perspective, then what we're called to do is to try to shape that as much as possible. We don't have yes. direct control over it, but there are some indirect ways in which we can have those hopefully shaped by the types of things we're supposed to be shaped by, right? Uh, things like a uh, loving neighbor. And what does that mean for the ways that we listen to people who think differently from us, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. A hundred percent. Let me flesh that out uh, in a way that will offend everybody equally. So <laughs> if for instance, you are a conservative and I say to you, you know, before you decide to vote down the line against social programs, like, would you consider volunteering for a few months in, uh, you know, in poor areas of your city, working with social workers and, and really understand how those programs are used by poor families, get to know some of those families, right? Like, that's what I would want them to do. And I would say to a liberal who is going to go down the line on increasing abortion rights in every possible way, I would say, you know, have, would you spend some time uh, at a crisis pregnancy center or perhaps with some people who chose not to have abortions, people who, you know, survived botched abortions? You know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's a little bit less clear who the population would be that you would spend your time with or whatever. But you know what I'm saying? It's just like, mm -hmm. would you expose your elephant to different stuff before you just make all these decisions. And, you know, for the most part, that's, Im that's often impractical, but it is also something that is psychologically painful to do. And this is something that I think people under focus on. If I can soapbox for just a minute, we underestimate the psychological pain of truly considering if we and our tribe are deathly wrong about something. This is why I, I have very little hope for white evangelicalism in America as it currently sits, because I know the just insane amount of pain it would take for that ship to turn around from my perspective. So I can be both, I can be understanding and empathetic 
for the individuals in that. And then I can also be a little cynical and skeptical because of the aggregate amount of pain it would take that people just don't willingly go through for the most part. We're not, we don't inflict pain on ourselves, not psychological pain. We really avoid it as much as possible, which I think is also going to come up as we bring this back to uncertainty tolerance. But I don't Mm -hmm. know if you have any response to that, my little soapbox. I mean, I think you're right. We don't like tension. I mean, that's just kind of built into us psychologically. And so I think we are going to do our best to try to avoid it if we can. Yeah. We've talked about the the clear virtue of intellectual humility, but I sometimes think that maybe uh, we need to add uncertainty tolerance to uh, our arsenal of virtues, right? Uh, for precisely the reason that you're bringing up uh, that I think, you know, it used to be uh, maybe even as recently as a hundred years ago, that we would live in a relatively homogenous group of uh, other humans who largely thought the way that we did and that we just didn't have to face tension that much. And of course, that's impossible in this day and age. I mean, even let me just say the word internet and, you know, that brings up just all the perspectives that we're going to face, even in the course of a day in the comfort of our own homes. Right. So I think that there's something about living well as a Christian that really has to do with not seeing tension as the enemy, but just saying, okay, tension, here we come. Let me take a deep breath and hey, this is going to be okay, you know? And it doesn't mean that I have to do something crazy, right? So there's something about maybe even elevating that to the level of a, a, a needed Christian virtue in this day and age, the ability to just tolerate tension well. Doesn't this come up? I don't know how many clients you see anymore. Uh, do, do you still see clients or are you just teaching and stuff? I, I have really uh, dropped down. Yeah. But you've, you've seen plenty of clients yeah. over the years. And and this idea of uncertainty tolerance, I mean, I just immediately think of clients, right? Like mm-hmm. you, if you have a client who is going through a struggle like this, and it, or it could be a marital struggle or it could be, you know, whatever, career issues they're they're unhappy in their career and they want you know we naturally want a quick the quickest possible solution Mm -hmm. the -hmm. shortest road to a reducing of our suffering and if you have a client where you're like man this client's got a lot of uncertainty tolerance you're just you just feel like they're so much more equipped right to deal with whatever's coming next that's right that's right it's the challenge of especially the ones that are unprepared for it to say, hey, let's slow down. I mean, ultimately the goal, if if it's possible, is gonna be to take this particular symptom away. But let me see if I could be a companion to you and just, as long as you're down here, it's like when you're in this pit, let me just be here with you and let's see if we can slow down enough to take a look around, right? And maybe with my help, we can make that be an okay experience that you can tolerate a little bit better and that will equip us to, Hopefully, right? Uh, Not in all cases, but hopefully to be able to kind of get out of whatever it is. But I mean, it just does not work to not face the tension or the uncertainty or the pain or whatever it is and expect it to just go away, right? Yeah, you'll just avoid it and that you'll avoid it in whatever way you tend to avoid things. So yeah, you can retreat into fundamentalism and legalism. You could avoid it through substance use. You can avoid it through other kinds of experiences that either shut down, you know, the parts of your brain or bring up other parts of your brain that distract you, you know, 
but there's no way out but through, right? You, it, it's, it's in that sense, it's similar to trauma work. You, you have to, you do have to sort of build up this, this thing. I mean, for myself personally, it isn't uncertainty so much that I have a hard time, but it's discomfort, like be feeling uncomfortable, bored, not in control of things. Like I I've recognized that I have this kernel of that at my center that I'm not good at. That's why I run a podcast that I'm in charge of and I will see clients and I choose who I see. And when I see them, I don't like being on vacation when other people are deciding what we're doing throughout the day. Like it's, I mean, it's a real thing I have to work on and it comes up in my marriage and it comes up in my friendships. And like, that's one of the things for me that that is a tolerance of maybe discomfort or something. There's, there's a version of that that's around uncertainty and I was a philosophy major. I can, I'm a little better with uncertainty, but you know, discomfort putting me at, you know, don't do that. I can't handle that. Right. So everyone's different. They have their own issues. Yeah. Their own primary struggles, but this is a, this is a big one. And, and yeah, anyway, you can respond to that. This is what brings us full circle then to that finitude, right? I have a, a friend, Kelly Capick, who's been doing some work on finitude lately. Uh, he's coming out with a whole book on it, but I think this is, again, one of those kind of neglected topics in Christianity, right? And what I find interesting is that we tend to kind of lump finitude and sin together. Like we just think about them. They tend to come up kind of in pairs. And I think we tend to think that our attitude towards our finitude should be similar to that toward our sin, right? It's regrettable. We bump up against it. We don't like it, right? And there's something about saying, no, no, that's, you know, if, if we accept that God created us as finite creatures, then that can change the nature of how we approach that, that instead of getting to that place where we don't know and saying, this is terrible, right? I should be able to know. And again, as I said before, I deserve to know, right? To say, okay, I, I think I've done my homework. I think I've tried to understand this as much as I can. And I'm bumping into my finitude here. And let me see if I can embrace that, right? Because my finitude is what draws me into a relationship, uh, the right kind of relationship of dependence, of trust in God. And I think that's where it becomes a moment for spiritual growth, for learning more about ourselves in relationship to God, learning a little bit more of who God is because of the difference that we're finding with who we are, for example. It inevitably makes me think of Kierkegaard and you know his idea that like you can't stop the, you can't pause the storm to decide what to do as the ship captain. Finitude is baked into the game. It's baked into the whole thing. It makes you have finite choices. You don't have infinite choices. We've talked a lot about context, where we happen to have been born and placed. We don't choose that. We are basically dealing with an incomplete set of options at every moment. And he says, what do you do in that situation? You choose. You you do your best. And as I get older, I just think he's just so incredibly right about that. There's there's no way around that argument. Like you just, you don't know. And I interpret any kind of industry that pops up to tell people that they can know, like, you know, what I'm describing is sort of like overreach of some types of Christian apologetics and I would describe fundamentalist hermeneutics of the Bible like this too. It's these things pop up because we want certainty. We don't want to have tolerance for uncertainty, 
but those are all snake oil in the end. They there's nothing. They are just relying on a bunch of people agreeing to each treat it like it works so that they can get rid of their uncertainty. Exactly. Yeah. I wonder if now is the time to kind of wander back into the, the area of faith then. Yeah, let's do because it. Because of course, certainty, uh, it, the, the problematic aspect, uh, you know, the one of the, one of the problems with uh, the ways that Christians experienced doubt these days is that we have wandered into this kind of view of faith that sees faith as being a hundred percent certain about something, right? So it's a very intellectual view and it's an intellectual view where certainty seems to be kind of at the center. And that's such an incredibly problematic way of viewing faith. Uh, it's not historically, you know, what Christianity has uh, thought of uh, in terms of faith. And of course, I think should be it should be apparent at this point of the podcast why it's so psychologically problematic to think about faith uh, in those ways. And so our concept of, the, I, I think, historically, the concept of faith within Christianity, uh, and we can see this even in passages like Hebrews 11, has always had both an explicit and an implicit aspect to it. And the intellectual certainty part of it has never really been emphasized. There's a trust in God, but that's different. Or there's an allegiance to God. There's a loyalty to God. These are all words that people are trying to use to you know, help reclaim kind of a historic uh, version of, of faith. But, but none of these involve saying there are these tenets of Christianity and I'm going to rate all of them, especially all of them equally on 100% certainty, right? I mean, I think that to, to live well as a Christian, you might want to have a fairly high degree of certainty of some of the kind of essential tenets of Christianity, sure. right? But especially when you have kind of a view that says we have all of these central ones and then we have these ones where Christians across the world differ in terms of how they think about it. And yet we have to take our view and be 100% certain about all of these secondary and tertiary issues, right? Wow, that's, I mean, I've brought up my friend, John Marriott. He says this is creating kind of a house of cards type uh, view of Christianity, because then, you know, you just flick one of those cards, one of those cards of a secondary or tertiary issue. You you, you can't believe it with 100% certainty anymore. And all of a sudden, just the whole thing just collapses. And that's exactly where the term deconstruction seems most apt to me. And I think that, you know, I, I can't prove this, but my sense is that the more of a house of cards, the more 100% certainty of a system you were given, the deeper your deconstruction will go, will have to go, really, because you were lied to or you were given something false further down into what it means to be you and how to navigate the world. Maybe that's one way of, of saying it. Mm -hmm. So you have to go down to the studs. I didn't get that. I was not, I didn't sort of have an inerrancy pounded into me. My dad was a therapist, you know, like when I was at my Christian high school and was applying to colleges, I was applying as a philosophy major and a psychology major to two different schools. And my, the, the like college counselor was like, well, I only believe in biblical counseling. And my dad either wrote her a letter or came in and then she brought me in later and apologized to me. So I, I was never under the spell of this kind of hundred percent certainty way of thinking. I do think that my, my personality might move me toward that naturally as such an abstract kind of a guy I live in my head, kind of a guy. I've really had to learn the bodily, affective, emotional, other aspect of that to take that more seriously. And height helped me do that by just showing me the cracks in that intellectual system. Anyway, I'm, 
I'm sort of spinning around here. Let's return to James 1. Okay, so now we have a, a sort of a little bit different framework. I'm going to read it again. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The first question I want to ask you is like, okay, with a reconceptualized sense of faith, doubt, you know, it's not all intellectual, like give us another reading of that with kind of what we've been talking about. Or who, who is the double-minded man maybe in this context? Well, I mean, I think it's important to throw into this mix that the verse right before that is talking about asking God for wisdom, right? Mm. So that's kind of uh, interesting in light of our talk here about doubt, right? I mean, yeah. it, it, it seems to be a relevant to our conversation in more ways than one, right? Yes. Oh, let me, okay. At the risk of talking too much, let me, because I, I, I've been trying to figure out how to do this. So I have it because I was raised evangelical. The only way I can think of someone who is sinning <laughs> is like someone having sex outside of marriage that, or, or like someone being too liberal, like that part worked of my uh, early education, my early evangelical I education. I'm going to try and think of it on the other end, like a greedy person or something. I'm going to use like a conservative vice. Okay. So let someone's asking for wisdom. Let's just imagine a double-minded man in this sense is someone who's like, well, I am like a manager at some sort of company that produces things that sort of harm the earth. And we, we are supposed to maximize our labor practices in such a way that like, I will be able to get a bigger house. So it's like, you can't ask God for wisdom while you are also maximizing your, the, the value of your shares at the cost of your workers. That's right. Like that might be a way of saying it. That's the exact double-mindedness that is being talked about that, again, gets unpacked a bit more in, in chapter four. You know, it's like you are, you have this allegiance, you know, you've adopted this set of values that says the more the better in this concrete example you're giving. And then you're also saying that you are adopting the set of values that is given to you by God that, you know, prioritizes need of neighbor and that kind of thing. And James is saying, Really? You, you say that you're struggling and that you're coming to God and asking about it? The, you're, you're being double-minded here. You're going back and forth between two alternatives here. And that's what, what that word doubt really means, right? Is the fluctuating between two alternatives. So how are you expecting to get anything out of this when you haven't even figured out what your allegiance is going to be here, right? What your loyalty is going to be here. And that's where the faith part comes in. So if you're asking with faith, what that means is not you're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps because that is not what faith is about. Right. It means if you set your part, you've you've given your allegiance to God. You said, "I'm I'm I'm in this camp, right? Uh, this is who I'm committing to. God, give me wisdom in this situation, right? Then things are going to happen." I think that's what James is saying here. It makes me think of Jesus. You know, if you have you're taking your sacrifice to the temple and you realize that you need to make up with your brother, like leave your sacrifice and go make up with your brother before returning to the temple. It's God and mammon. You, it's, it's a psychological truth that Christianity as a wisdom tradition has picked up on and passed down to us. You cannot be fundamentally of two minds at the same time. You just can't do it. Your br human brains won't do it. 
and it will infect other parts of your life if you are that way. And that is such a different way of thinking about it's almost like we need new words because our words for knowledge, doubt, belief are, are so tinged by the enlightenment that we there. It's so embedded in those words that like we have to have of one hour conversation to sort of take that out and, and get rid of that implicit meaning because this is when we live, you know? Yeah. I mean, I wonder if it's helpful even to, to definitely needing to at least reevaluate the ways that we use words and then think through the implications it has for things like doubt. I found myself thinking as, as you were talking through that, uh, that the, what might be kind of a bookend to this James verse is the other verse that seems to come up a, a lot in the context of discussions about doubt in the book of Mark, where uh, Jesus is talking to the father of the child, right? Asking for healing. And um, God says, you know, Jesus says, if you believe all things are possible and you know, what does the guy say? I, I just love the response. You know, he says, I, I believe help my unbelief. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, I think that's such a lovely prayer in the context of times when we're struggling with doubt. Right. Uh, because it illustrates the single-mindedness that James is encouraging us to. It illustrates how we can be, we're, we're, we're asking Jesus for help, right? We're coming to him, just like this father is coming to Jesus for help. And that doesn't mean that we have everything figured out or that our hearts are at ease or that we're even 100% confident that things are going to happen in a certain way. But the allegiance is manifest in I. I believe I'm committing to this direction. So help me then with the unbelief, right? Yeah. It's the entrusting God to that experience, that, that experience that we're having, that I think demonstrates that allegiance or that loyalty, which is again, why I come back to, I think that's maybe the single most helpful thing that we can encourage people who are experiencing distress around doubt to do is to go to God with that um, distress. That is a good place to end, Liz. Uh, I wanted I want to go deeper into pluralism and the internet, <laughs> uh, but that's it. We we don't have time for it. But thank you for bringing that up. I th I think that if people want something to chew on, it can also be like, yeah, like how are we expecting ourselves? Are we recognizing the time and place in which we live, where there has been an explosion of interconnectedness, in a way that, like, frankly, our minds did not evolve to handle, and so. Like to, to wrap that with uncertainty tolerance very briefly say, okay, how do I do that? Well, uncertainty tolerance, intellectual humility are virtues of our time, you know, like maybe different virtues have different eras where they become more important. So mm -hmm. what's the, what's the virtue version of frugality? That's obviously the, the silly version. Temperance? That sounds right. So like in a time of war, when you have to be rationing or in a time of drought or famine, like temperance is the is the virtue for that time, because if you are greedy, other people will die, you know, and maybe like one of the virtues for our time is intellectual humility and uncertainty tolerance, because we are living at a time of exploding interconnectedness and information. And so we can like control for that and go, OK, well, God, this is the time that you have me living. So. How do I rise to that occasion and to not, yeah, to, to sort of be able to recognize that faith, like, yeah, I believe help my unbelief that's in Mark doubt is not that sense of doubt that we have in our popular lexicon is not what James is talking about. And that's not 
but it really has happened that in American Protestantism, that has become so mainlined, I, I mean, injected into the veins, not mainline Protestant, that like that is so common. And, and it, it gives the fundamentalists basically, they, they win the argument before it started, if that's what you mean by doubt and belief, because they're the ones who are peddling certainty. And it's a false certainty, but they're only winning because we're all working on these impoverished definitions that we have inherited in our particular contexts, right? That sounds exactly right. Yes. Well, then we should definitely end right now because I am feeling maximally good about myself. Um, Liz, thank you so much for for joining me today. Uh, Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing this episode. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Koch for five bucks a month and get access to two exclusive episodes per month, as well as the patron only Facebook group. Liz, any, any links I should put in the show notes for people who want to engage with your work? Do you have like one website that's sort of got all your YouTube clips and, you know, all that? Well, there's definitely just the uh, faculty page on the Biola website, which is easily findable. But uh, I've written uh, a bit on this particular topic in an article in Christian Scholars Review. And I think uh, just Googling uh, Christian Scholars Review and then my name will take you to uh, actually the full article. And so if folks want to dig into that a bit more, that might be a good place to go. Josh will find that, track it down and put it in the show notes. Liz, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.